0: Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right. So, today
1: the next few days, we'll talk about, I said here,
0: theoretical approaches and uh, questions. Uh... About operate conditioning. so some of the, this this is sort of I, have, I want to say newer, but it's not that much newer because some of the stuff we see from the forties. But there's sort of the interesting theoretical questions that are out there. Um, first thing we look at are res- responses and reinforcers. So, how important? Coming up. Okay. Screw you. Have, whoa! That's <laughs> <laughs> They all came up, all in the same place. Sometimes that happens. It's really weird. Okay, I'll quit this. Let's try that again. start restart. Try this. There's always weird noises in this building coming from the roof and stuff like that. You ever notice that? It's like that. You hear that? Something's leaking somewhere. No, I'm serious. It's probably what's going on. Okay, here we go. So how important are responses and how important are reinforcers? (laughs) People like Thorndike and Skinner, of course, would say they're crucial, right? Um, Thorndike's law of effect is all about the stimulus, the response, and then the reinforcer sort of stamping the the response in. Same thing with Skinner. Uh, He'd say the same thing, that you you, you have to have both. Uh, Animals don't have mental... Nobody has mental events. Or if they do, we can't study them. So... This was the prevailing view for a very long time. And it probably is the prevailing view, frankly, among a lot of people. But Edward Tolman came along in the 1930s and 40s and showed that it's actually not completely correct, that we need either of those things to show learning, or to have learning. So Tolman was an interesting guy, by the way. Coleman was a, uh, in World War, when the states entered World War I, uh, he refused, uh, he protested against the American involvement in World War I, which people didn't do in 1917. It's pretty amazing. Um, on the other hand, World War II, uh, he had no problem with that, which again, uh, a lot of Americans were isolationists. Uh, so, and in fact, his brother worked on the uh, Manhattan Project. Building an atomic bomb. A lot of psychologists worked uh, with uh, uh, the OSS, the precursor of the CIA. Uh, indeed, uh, B.F. Skinner uh, designed a, uh, a missile that was guided by a pigeon pecking. So the pigeon actually is in the missile, like in a bomb, and it has a picture of what it's supposed to be, you know, what the target is, and then it would peck to keep it, to, to steer the missile. Uh, they never had to use that. Also developed you know, real guided missiles. So it uh, wasn't necessary. But there were all kinds of interesting things. Uh, some animal behavior experts developed the bat bomb. Which sounds like something from Batman. But it's not. It's a bomb. A small incendiary explosive you attach to a bat. Then you release the bats.
1: Okay?
0: Bats of mass destruction. And the bats, they roost underneath buildings, right? And Japanese buildings were basically all wood. So then, of course, they explode. And The bats give their lives to to, to fight Imperial Japan, and then a city burns down. They were never used. Uh, It was used uh, mistakenly. One was loaded up once, and it burned down an Air Force base. (laughs) Like It would have worked. Instead, the Allies developed a thing called the nuclear weapon, and we didn't need the bats. So Tolman was interesting that way. He he, he also helped out in the war effort in World War II. When it got to be the Red Scare stuff of the early 50s and all the... uh, McCarthyism, they were making people sign loyalty oaths, making university professors sign loyalty oaths saying they were communists. Uh, he wouldn't do it. Now, he was no communist, he just said, this is none of your damn business what politics are. He was a cool guy. He was kind of a rebel. So I, I really have a thing for Tolman. I, I, I think he... he and he, his science was rebellious, too. That's that, So it all sort of goes together. So what Tolman was doing, he wrote a paper that was a there's a seminal paper that people should read. Uh, it's from 1948, and it's sort of a review of everything he's, he'd been doing in his lab for like the 15 or 20 years. And the, the paper's called Cognitive Maps in Rats and Men. Very cool. Uh, really, it's kind of a fun read, too, because it, it talks about all these cool experiments he did. So, what he discovered was a process called latent learning. Okay? So, in other words, the animal is learning something... But it's not doing anything. It's not, perhaps not getting a reinforcement. Or it's... I'll tell you in a second. Let's talk first about getting a reinforcement. So Tolman sets up a complicated maze. It's not like we've turned out the eight arm radial maze. not like that. More like a... You know, the kind of maze you... Think, like a corn maze. <laughs> Except not with corn. Much smaller and for rats. So he sets this up. Rats learn this kind of thing pretty quickly. You put a rat on this... You put some uh, cheese at the end, a little reinforcer, right? They learn pretty quickly uh, to run this thing. And in fact, you get something if you were to graph it out. So this is files. And this is errors over here, okay? Number of errors. So one, two, five, six. Okay, so 10 trials, so let's actually make it 11. So, on trial one, they're making lots of errors. They make fewer, and then fewer, and fewer, and fewer, and fewer, and fewer, and fewer. So eventually, it sort of goes like this. It's a classic kind of learning curve. Most learning early, a lot less later on. That's exactly what you normally see. That's not a problem, and that's, that's not the way you learn part. Now, he's got two more groups. He's mm-hmm. got like one standard control group. That's this group here. Now, he's got a group that have never been given any reinforcement. They've been put in the maze. But never given any. Now the errors here, by the way, are, are turning mistakes. Like they go down the wrong alley. You can also do this with time. You can, there's, a lot of, there's a couple of different measures you can use. Okay. So this other group has, has had ten times on the maze. Right? They're pretty flat. And right away we think, well, they haven't learned anything. Now on trial 11, it gets 11 there, they're actually given, there's food at the end of the maze. Okay? On trial 12, they're right down here. They've learned the maze, they had, there was no, No no incentive, I guess you all want to say, for them to show that they've learned anything. So they made mistakes, turned left, turned right. It's also true with time. It's not quite that dramatic, mm-hmm. but it's damned close. And in fact, uh, on the, the, the final trial, the first experiment this was done, on, on the, the second trial where they've experienced food, they're actually a little tiny bit better, not statistically significantly better, but a little tiny bit better than the standard control group. They've learned the maze. They just had no reason to ever show you. No, you don't need a reinforcer for learning, so it's latent learning. There's something you often here in learning. People talk about the learning-performance sort of dichotomy, right? Because you can learn something, but you don't show it,
1: right?
0: And I think we all have experiences like that in our lives. We've, we've, we've learned something, we just never shown anything <laughs> not anymore
1: um,
0: but if you think about something like it a classic BBC documentary I saw about a kid that didn't speak till he was about five and the kid was totally and he couldn't be diagnosed with anything he, just, he, he could hear and he could totally understand everything that, that, that his parents were saying it was obvious and he had no learning disability he could read oh well, it looked like he could read because he could answer questions you know Writing stuff down, he'd write things. He's never talked. So they thought, well, it's, it's nothing but there's nothing wrong with his vocal cords, nothing. And then one morning apparently the kid looks up and says, Mother gives the kid a bowl of cereal and he says, You put too much milk on it. She, they went, What? You speak? And the kid, why didn't you speak before? He said, Well, there was nothing to say until now. Ooh. That's t- taking a long time to set up a joke for that kid. Or, you know, there's something going on now. That kid, that's, that's like, you know, you realize I, I, I'm not going to say until five, and I'm going to totally freak out my parents. <laughs> my son John, he could read, and he never showed us that he could read until one day he decided to show us he could read. And he walked up to all the names in the, this uh, was in junior kindergarten. Yeah, he walked up to all the names uh, that were lined up uh, where all the kids Hooks with. And he walked up and he just started reading them all. We still have the the little note that was sent home that day because the teacher was freaked. Right? And then he went back to, okay, yeah, sort of humming to himself, but he just walked up and just read them all. Right? Learning and performance, two different things. Same thing's happening here. The animals have learned something, they just had no, no reason to show you. So, responses, sorry, reinforcers aren't necessary, are responses necessary? Now, this, how are you going to make it so responses aren't necessary and you can show learning on a maze? How are you going to teach rats a maze without them running the maze? They can't run because if they run, they're learning a response, right? So, how can they learn a maze without ever running on a maze? Show them other rats running the maze. Uh, from what angle, like above, kind of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. You have to make them pay attention, right? Yeah. Kind of hard. Yeah, you had an idea. I
1: was
0: gonna say that too. You say that too. Okay. Mm. So you got to show them the maze. You got they have to learn the ins and outs, the, the, the lefts and rights. Any other ideas? Please, pardon. They can't like. Can they look
1: at like an image, like a map?
0: They'd interpret that, though, just like a regular... Yeah, probably not, eh? Yeah. It's a good, that's an idea. Probably wouldn't work. Yeah. Virtual
1: maze?
0: This was done in 1955.
1: <laughs> 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 so, 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 there was no VR back then. <laughs> yeah, please. Could you, like, put the maze, like, in the pen? It's like a clear thing, and the maze is below it, so they're kind of walking the maze, but they're not actually... You're pretty in the pretty close.
0: It's, it's along those lines, Yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? That's close, anyway.
1: Uh oh wait, that'd be a bit teaching. Uh, I'm thinking more uh deep, showing them the, the more the direction of where they have to go. Yeah. If you wanna do that.
0: You wanna show them the directions, there's no doubt about that. You want to show them where to turn left, where to turn right. That's exactly true. But the question is how? Okay. What happened was Henry Gleitman, who was a Tolman graduate student, and later was the guy who taught Barbara Skorla and Sarah Shuttleworth and all these guys. So, I mean, he's had this huge influence. What Gleitman did was he took rats and put them on little carts and drove them around the maze. <laughs> <laughs> so he put them in little cars and just drove them around the maze. <laughs> all over. So that's already fun. <coughs> mm-hmm. And guess what? They're just fine. The first time they're on the maze. First time they go on this food at the end. The first time they don't. Nothing special. But the second time, they're just as good as uh, rats that have ran ten times. So now we don't need a response or a reinforcer for an animal to learn a cognitive map. Can cool. Did he take them through all possibilities, mm-hmm. or just showed just, them all around? Yep. So they just didn't take the right path. They, took, they didn't take the right path the first time they got on by themselves, because what's the point? But as soon as they learn there's, a, there's food at the end, the next time they're, they're straight in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <coughs> Pretty neat. And I don't know where the hell it is. Somewhere, i I can never find it. I have a picture of one of the rats in one of these little carts. And they're kind of strapped in so they don't move around, so they got like a little seatbelt on <laughs> <laughs> around. It's actually quite cool. <clears throat> this cognitive mapping stuff, in fact, has became such a big deal, and people started to think it was in, um, in, yeah, in the 1970s. People thought it was uh, very, and it is hippocampally driven. Um, there's actually a book called The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map, which the cool thing is, which was published by Oxford University Press, but they forgot to renew the copyright, so it's actually out of copyright, and it's free. Now, it's also out of date, but um, O'Keefe was the, it's O'Keefe and Nadell, and John O'Keefe was one of the authors. He won a thing this year, a couple weeks ago, Nobel Prize um, for that work. So the stuff and the stuff on place cells and hippocampus, and it all comes back to Tolman uh, doing this stuff. I think the other reason I really like Tolman is that my honors thesis supervisor was writing a book about him. She was a history of psychology nut. Uh, and she was writing a book on Tolman, and uh, she died before it was finished, which is too bad, because she would have been writing it for 25 years, and had she actually perhaps written the book, we could all read it. It's a shame, because he was an interesting guy. Interesting guy. Uh, the psychology building at Stanford is named after Tolman. So, obviously pretty important. All right, so that's pretty cool. Tolman and cognitive maps. This shows us now we don't need. Yeah, this isn't always the case that we're not going to need reinfor- reinforcers or or responses even, but it does show us that there are occasions where that's true. Right, so they aren't necess- You don't necessarily have to have that to have learning to happen. And this sort of fits in again. This stuff comes out in the '40s and the '50s. Fits in with that whole cognitive revolution thing that uh, many people have talked about before. So you don't need reinforce it. Well, perhaps it strengthens. I mean, it's nice. It certainly helps, right? <laughs> Obviously, perhaps it strengthens some sort of SR bond, but it's not necessary. In fact, getting all cognitively, maybe it becomes part of a representation, right? Now, Tolman liked representations. Indeed, he talked about cognitive maps. But maybe we always have representations when we learn, we being rats, we being pigeons, we being people, um, when we learn sort of operant conditioning situations, right? So maybe we get representations. And the idea that this stimulus leads to this response, and then you get a reinforcer, the three term contingency, right? The spherical stimulus, response, reinforcer. Perhaps that's just part of the whole representation of, of how the world works. Again, I think I was saying earlier in the course, I was saying that the point of learning, the evolutionary point of learning, is to predict the future. So maybe that's what's happening here, is, again, you're predicting the future, and you're mm-hmm. just doing it in this way, this time by... Um, it becomes part of this representation of what of how the world works. So here's a... Look, a squirrel experiment. He is not just, uh, just do... Classical stuff, there's a cool operant thing. squirrel. This is an honor's thesis, by the way. This what makes this really cool. Rat pulls a chain, rat gets water. Simple operant task. Rat pushes lever, rat gets food. Another simple operant task. These are simple things that rats can <coughs> learn. We establish that. Later on, rat gets food, rat is poisoned. In other words, he gets its its, its uh, taste aversion. Okay? So there's three different things the rat the the cobal scroll up paired together. The chain and the water, the lever and the food, and the food and the poison. Right. Now, according to everything that Skinner would hold dear, this shouldn't affect lever pressing. Because lever pressing is being reinforced with food. Right? But rats don't press the lever. They have obviously built up some kind of representation of lever food and poison.
1: <clears throat> hmm.
0: That's kind of neat. And again, realize that Skinner would never have predicted that. <laughs> in fact, it's it's almost I see a couple guys who looks in your face. You're almost thinking, well, why wouldn't he predict that? Why, why of course the rat should behave like that? But see, the rat doesn't behave like that. Well, Skinner would think the rat wouldn't behave like that because food is, a re- is, is reinforcing lever pressing. So the response and reinforcer have been connected, but not directly. So if we want to think that the poison has somehow been Mark, just had here? Yeah. So if you think that the if we've got food, or sorry, lever to food to poison or sickness, you want to call it that? What the rat has done is somehow skipped this and made that connection. Right? You've never directly taught the animal that lever pressing leads to sickness. Yet that's what happens. So what the rat has done, the rats made the connection. Not the researcher has made the connection. That's the, there's the difference. There's the rub. The rat has become an active part of its own learning. It's representing how the world works. It's not just a mindless automaton, like Skinner thought rats were. So that's a pretty big leap. So there's an an association between all three parts of the three-term contingency, then, probably (coughs) So you know you've got stimulus, three-term contingency is the distributed stimulus, the response, and the reinforcement. So it's probably the case that there's also a connection there. So it seems that that's what happened. You look at a whole bunch of other data like this, where animals have made this connection. They've, they've shown that they've, they've, they've made like a representation. It's a simple representation, by the way. This isn't very complicated. But it used to be like people all thought that SD comes on, response happens, reinforcement happens. It's a bang, bang, bang. Today we're much more likely to say that what happens is the animal, when, 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 when the SD comes up, it activates a representation. Pretty cool. So, again, this is quite a bit different than the way Skinner thought. All right, questions so far? Okay. Just feel feeling I didn't push the button. No, I did. I must get annoying for people listening because I keep thinking I'm going, did I push the button? Mm-hmm. Okay. Are there two types of learning? What's going on? There we go. A lot of people will respond, yes. There's operant conditioning and classical conditioning, and other people will respond. And I think we can make a I, I think we can make a point uh, for that. We can certainly say that they seem to operate by somewhat different rules. One's the uh, the animal's operating on its environment, the other one the animal the operate the, the that's that's this one, and then classical the animal is being operated on by the environment. New connections being made. Um, others will call it you no. Know, so it's all associative learning. We're all connecting things, right? We're just making connections between different stimuli, different and behaviors, and just different events, call it events. Then there's people like me that ask you why you're asking such a stupid question. I mean... Is it the case that there are different well one, of course there's well, two is it? yeah, that's the stupid part. There's got to be more than two. Right? Don't you think? Here's my opinion, so you know, the, the, the don't have to agree with me. I think it's silly for people to get all caught up in are classical and operative conditioning different. There's going to be different kinds of learning. They're gonna have they're gonna have separate or sorry, they're gonna follow similar rules, laws, they do. We've seen that from habituation all the way to operative conditioning. That that it's the case that animals, uh, you always know, see acquisition curves look like this, you always see savings, you always see spontaneous recovery, you always see extinction. All that stuff shows up in everything. right? It shows up in a nematode, doing habituation. It shows up in us. <clears throat> so there are going to be a lot of similarities. Hell, it shows up in language learning, which is pretty special. There's only one animal on the planet that does that, us. So they're pretty special. But all those characteristics show up. So while we might have two different kinds of learning in experimental chambers... We at least two kinds of learning. There are probably many kinds of learning, but they probably share similar subsystems or cognitive modules to use sort of fancy uh, modern terminology. So there's probably stuff. There's probably a module with this association. There's there's, there's definitely one that does space and one that does time, and almost certainly one that does number, right? And then associating different things from those. So. There are people, however, there literally are people that say there's only one kind of learning. It's all associative learning. I think that's crazy. It certainly goes back to the sort of blank slate, John Locke, uh, Thomas Hobbes kind of view, right? The, the contents of the mind rests on experience and nothing else. There's only, there, therefore, and it's, it's all about associations, associationism, right? So it, that seems a little bit extreme. In fact, it is quite extreme. But also, just saying there's only, thinking you're you're kind of being crazy by saying there's two types is also kind of silly. I think it's a crazy question. People do get concerned about it, which is one of the reasons I thought I'd bring it up. It is still a question people ask, and it's still a question that shows up in animal learning textbooks, and I still don't know why. I don't know. I I just, people worry about things they shouldn't worry about. And perhaps me worrying about this is something I shouldn't (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that said if this was you know 30 years ago pretty common view the, 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 these were the two views <clears throat> there's one kind of learning or there's two kinds of learning oh and then there's language in humans that was the com- that was the prevailing view that's gone now you know I mean tell me that uh, a Clark's Nutcracker, remember <coughs> your seeds were that it cached six months ago, is the same thing as a pigeon pecking at a key. I, I just don't think so. I think it shares some of the same properties, sure. Right. But it's patently different. It's like the idea, remember I talked about qualitative versus quantitative? That was in this class maybe, another class. You know, the idea that a snake has legs. Well, oh, yeah, they do, but, Think they don't really call them legs. They're all little tiny buds and they're kind of gone. I wasn't in this class. They all it all runs together. I can't wait till my sabbatical starts. <laughs> I'm going to have a year of not sitting there thinking, have I said this already? All right. Are there any thoughts on that, by the way? Any thoughts on this, this idea of the different kinds of learning? I don't know. Does it seem patently silly to worry about or... Yeah, I just think it's a little silly, you know? Anyway. Okay. We can push the limits of operating conditioning. What about something like heart rate conditioning? What? Well, what about making people control their heart rates? Hmm. Well, it is possible to slow your heartbeat down. Sure. You just got to learn how to relax. You'll slow your heartbeat down. You can speed your heart heartbeat up. Right? Just You can do it. My, I used to do that. I used to do this thing where I'd make my face go really flushed, but getting close to the age where my dad had his heart his heart attack, and I was like, eh, no. But so we know how to do it, but can we control it? Can can can, can can I teach somebody, not me, but, you know, somebody who's an expert in this, to actually slow their heart rate down? So the way you do this is you hook somebody up to a heart rate monitor, and you make it beep when the heart rate gets low enough, whatever you want it to get set to. And, of course, people will work for beeps. All you got to tell them is make it beep. I mean, you don't have to actually give them a little... Nuggets of food. They'll, they'll work for a beat. And people can learn this. People can learn this. They can slow their heartbeat. Now think about this. Think about people that do like um, like meditation. That's what they're doing, right? They're slowing themselves down, calming down. You think about I mean, with autistic people, you, one of the things you have to teach them is self-calming techniques because when you get older, there's not always going to be someone someone there to rub your back and say everything's going to be okay. So you have to teach them how to self-calm when they get freaked out. When John has a meltdown, it's not a pretty sight. It's it's really not fun. And he's uh, he's a big, strong boy. Right? And it's like, you just got to tell him you got to calm yourself down. And one of the things you do is you teach people these self-calming techniques. This has actually been used in uh what do you call it uh, clinical settings internet for using something called biofeedback this used to be really expensive because you had to get somebody a heart rate monitor you had to have them you know sit in a lab and learn how to calm now you can actually do it with your phone it's a lot easier than it used to be so easily, one of the big drawbacks of biofeedback learning uh, bio- is, is that you have to go to a lab and they have to use expensive equipment. Now you can just do it with your phone. The neat thing is what this does. What about stress? What about someone who's got like, a, like say, let's say a heart problem? What about teaching them to just to literally lower their blood pressure because you make your heart slow down? Okay. So along with all the other things, right? Along with changing your diet and exercising more and not smoking and all those things you're supposed to stop doing when you hit, you know, uh, when you get old, right? When you're like 40, you start thinking, <laughs> I shouldn't I should do stuff like that anymore. Because you start noticing the effects it has, basically. Until you're 40, you pretty much, of, you know, you're invincible. <coughs> then when <you're> I'm <up> 40, you <sighs> short of breath. I haven't been doing anything. Oh, that's because you are 50 pounds overweight. and you spoke to enough bacteria? cigarettes a day. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> didn't used to affect me before. I remember like, when I was 17, I'd go out <laughs> and like eat. My dad and I once went out and ate 175 chicken wings and all you could eat chicken wing place. And then, uh, you know, went to school, came back, had dinner. <laughs> Don't live like that anymore. So you got to make these changes. Well, why not teach people also how to just lower their blood pressure? This is not... It's had some... It's not always successful with people. Um, with, with, say, blood pressure. The neat thing is I've read papers where people control their blood sugar. So you have to teach them. It's, again, using biofeedback. Now, I don't know how that works. Right? Because you you aren't consciously in control at all of, of your... Production of insulin. It <laughs> doesn't happen. Yet, you can reinforce people for lowering their blood sugar, and they can do it. Not enough that they don't, you know, let's say a diabetic or something. Not enough that they, they don't need shots or have to change their diet or something. So, But it doesn't always work. A lot of the papers that I've read about this, and a lot of this was came out in the 70s, um, I always have the feeling that these are all .05 things. They're just dumb luck. Because I, I, find it really hard to believe that people can actually control their blood sugar. Or what are some other physiological processes that I've read people can supposedly control? Some of these experiments I've read. I remember the blood sugar one freaked me. There was another one about oh something to do with uh, was it potassium or calcium in their bloodstream? Like it's really I, I find it hard to believe. So I, I think that a lot of those were just not very well measured kind of things. Possible, I guess. But the heartbeat thing's real. Like, that, that's one that's pretty reliable. And you can see how that could work because you actually do have some, you can calm yourself down. Right? Now, what's the behavior you're, you're reinforcing there? I don't know. I mean, is it, it might be different for everybody. It might be different for everybody. I'm not sure. But the final outcome is that your heart rate goes down. Yeah, that's weird. Okay, it says it's connected. Oh, it's just sort of half connected. Well, that's not good. Anyway, it doesn't matter that much. Um, okay. So what is a reinforcer? We thought, I said, "Was a beep, a beep. People worked for beeps. That's true. Well, the classic definition that Skinner gave was, you know, some event that causes the increase, the increases the likelihood of, a behavior, of, of of some behavior. By the way, what causes? So it's, it's an event that causes that increases the likelihood of behavior. What increases the likelihood of behavior? Oh, reinforcers. What are reinforcers? Things that. Co- oh, isn't that a little circular? A, a touch, just a touch, or completely. What causes an increase in behavior? Reinforces. What's reinforced? It's the thing that causes an increase in behavior. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a good definition. So, you know, eventually, you know,
1: enough. Ah!
0: Your heart rate goes up. Now, those of you that have taken the neurofarm course know that, in fact, we know what they... We we can measure when things have reinforcing properties by looking at a certain circuit in uh, the limbic system. So, I mean, that's something we can do now. So the nice thing is we can have a nice physiological definition, but let's not get into brains. Let's not have have to put microelectrodes across a connection between nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area. Let's try something different. So theoretically, let's think of it this way. Maybe it's sort of drive or need reduction. So maybe it's like drive or need reduction. So when you reinforce with food, okay, if you're reinforcing with food, you almost always have animals that are a little hungry. They're food deprived right? If you're using pigeons, for example, the day before, um, you don't well, you haven't fed them since. Just after the experiment, the last time they were in the, in the so they you run the experiment every day. This is the one thing about working with nonhumans. Um, if you do that kind of work, like in grad school, you can you run it seven days a week. Rats don't know it's Sunday, right? They have no idea. Birds have no they don't take Christmas off, right? This is it's uh, you're in the lab seven days a week. Right? Yeah, I guess I probably did six and a half. I did Saturdays. And then Sundays, I usually didn't run stuff. I'd go in and just feed them. But really, you should take off as few days as possible. Anyway, so you put the pigeon in the box. He gets some food. Fine. You give him his food. You weigh him, and then you give him some food. And the next day, so 24 hours later, he hasn't eaten since he got that food in his his cage. 24 hours later, you put him back in the cage, and it works. So he probably has kept around 85% of what we call his free feeding weight. Same thing, you do the same thing with rats, except you feed, you know, you feed them um, a different food, of course, not grain, you feed them <laughs> you feed a rat chow. With the chickadees, we used to just, we, we wouldn't weigh them, because that was like a nightmare. Um, with, the, with the rats and the pigeons, you try to keep them at a steady weight, and you'd know, okay, let's see, his, his weight's down 10 grams, let's give him 10 extra grams of food today. But, so they're hungry, so they're, they they will... The idea is there's a like, drive reduction, it's, it's like a motivational thing, right? So if they're hungry, they'll work for food. Now it's interesting because PREMAC has this idea, or had, I mean, PREMAC's or anyone that it's actually not, <coughs> because it's drive reduction, how does an animal behaviorally know it's reducing that drive? It actually does it by the behavior of eating. So it may be the case that the food isn't the reinforcer. The act of eating is the reinforcer. So it's not the food itself. It's the fact that the animal hasn't been able to eat for 24 hours. There's no food. So now it has a drive built up, almost like a Sort of like, uh, people call this sometimes a hydraulic model of motivation. It's like there's this big jar of motivation to eat. Okay, so it's like, and then water goes into it. So that's why it's called hydraulic. And that's more drive to eat. And eventually, it gets really full. And the only way that thing's going to reduce the pressure is to eat. Is that kind of notion? So the notion then is that it's not the food that's the reinforcer. It's actually the act of eating. Hmm. Okay, so Premack's principle is that given two responses arranged in an operant conditioning procedure, more probable beha- probable behaviors will reinforce less probable behaviors. Less probable behaviors will not reinforce more probable ones. Eating is more probable than key pecking, so eating will reinforce key pecking, but key pecking cannot reinforce eating. So again, if it is this drive reduction thing, it may be the case that it's not the food itself, but it's the act of eating. This may sound a little strange. Think of it this way. If it was sexual behavior that was reinforcing... Is it the behavior itself that's reinforcing, the sexual behavior? Or is it having an orgasm? Well, that feels pretty good, too. But it's the behavior itself, probably. You you can see how you can sort of separate them there.
1: Right?
0: So it's the same kind of thing here. It's not the, the food, per se. It's the act of just doing the behaviors of eating. How can we test this? It was possible. So Premack tried this in 1963. Okay, these are monkeys. First thing he did is he found out there were gave each monkey three possible behaviors in their cages. They had a lever they could press, you know, like a little like a little little rat lever. They had a door they could open and a plunger they could pull sounds like, you know, the little play sets that kids get in their uh, crib, right? Right? Look well, you know, those little baby play sets. Something like that. There's little things they can push and pull and all that kind of stuff. For all I know, that's actually what it was, too. I haven't looked at that thing in years. Okay. So what you do in this case is you can find out with each monkey, and it turned out with all the monkeys, was the same thing. The most likely thing they were to do was press 11. The next most likely thing they were to do is open and close the little door. The final thing was to pull the little plunger. So we should say then that L should be able to reinforce D. Oh, it should say L reinforces D. It should be L there. L reinforces P. So you could make... The interesting thing is, you could make the animal pull the plunger more if you made it contingent. When you pull the plunger, you get to push the lever again. When you pull the plunger, you get to open the door again. When you open the door, you get to push the lever again. And in fact, that's exactly what PREMAC got. Quite cool, actually. So people talk about Premackian reinforcers. and um, reinforcers. These are activities that act as reinforcers. And you can see, like, in behavior therapy or in an applied setting, this can be used quite often. Because it's behavior. Think about what you're doing. Let's say a kid. When you finish your homework, you can play with your Xbox. Playing with your Xbox isn't like eating. (laughs) It's for some people, yes, maybe. But it's a more likely behavior. What's a less likely behavior? Doing your homework, right? If you do this, then you can do this. We do it all the time. The thing is, if you are systematic about it, you can do really well with this. You can control behavior quite nicely. Now, in token economies, a lot of times, you're going to be giving up these little tokens. I've talked about this before. And then people can cash them in for valuable prizes, like chocolate bars and cigarettes. But instead of doing that, why not say, if you do this, then you can watch TV. If you do this, then you can use the ping-pong table, whatever. I don't know what they do in psychiatric institutions. Watch TV play ping-pong, that's my guess. Used to be smoke, but that's become, been made illegal. <coughs> Actually, I visited a psychiatric institution. I think I told you this it's once when I was in an abnormal psych class on a field trip in 1987, I guess I. And they even had a little bar for the, for the residents. Well, why not? I mean, they lived there, right? So there was... Now, I don't know if they were serving liquor, but they had, like, an actual bar with barstools set up and the whole thing. I don't know. Why not? People lived there. Let them do something. It was all laid out like a radial maze. That was the weird thing about going to that place. There was a central hub, and then eight corridors leading out. It was like, I've seen this. I run rats <laughs> on one of these all the time. <laughs> So, how do we apply this? Um, Mitchell and Stoffmeyer, uh, 73, used pre principles with schizophrenics. So, they reinforced them. Well, they reinforced them for candy smokes. Um, they're usually not that effective with schizophrenics. And there's probably a few reasons here. One of them is that they they don't want to take anything from anybody. They've got a lot of paranoid schizophrenics, right? So they think you're part of the conspiracy. My one experience with the schizophrenic, he thought I was part of the conspiracy. It's a guy in our lab in in, in London when I was a postdoc. Oh, you're part of it, he said to me. Oh, God, this is creepy. Being around a schizophrenic, it's all all fun and games until you're actually around a schizophrenic. It's really disturbing it's also the case, frankly, that a lot of times the, the medication uh, takes... One of the things that it does is it makes things like candy and cigarettes a lot less reinforcing. Uh, it does that because of how it affects dopamine. So these, these aren't really effective. Uh, typical things you might give like candies or, or back in the day, smokes, to people. <clears throat> now sitting, if you've got negative symptoms of schizophrenia, you know what that is, right? That's like more withdrawal, right? So you got like the sort of uh, catatonic Sitting is highly probable. That's what they do all day. So so severe social withdrawal. They sit. Ah, there's a Prygnacian reinforcer if I've ever seen one. So you say, look, you can't sit until you do something. Some kind of activity with others make them more social, right? And it actually has some effect. You can reinforce, because again, the most likely thing for them to do is sit still. That's what they do. You can sit still quietly and rock back and forth, but first, I'd like you to draw a picture with the group. Well they do it's kind of cool now of course the most effective thing is to just give them the drugs right but the behavior a lot of times they people have been schizophrenic for so damn long and especially we've got talking about early 70s here um, people might have been institutionalized for for a long time ah I love this one unruly nursery school children So, well, these guys also. I think this is also bad, right? Yeah, it's also Joel Um <clears throat> You got kids that are, you know, rotten kids. <laughs> they're all good kids. No, they're not. Some kids aren't. Just saying. Um, they're all precious snowflakes. <laughs> they're not. Some of them are little assholes. Um, well, they have to be, right? Like. Oh, yeah, until somebody didn't buy one of Hitler's paintings. I'm sure he was a great guy. (laughs) I'm thinking he was hooked up wrong from day one. So, you got these kids that are running around a lot. Okay, so they're just, you know, a little hyper. There's a lot of kids like that. Why don't we let you run around like an idiot and scream as a reinforcement? So... How about sit quietly, pay attention, maybe, again, draw a picture. I don't know why I keep focusing on that. Or listen to the teacher do story time. And then, when they do that, do it quietly. Sit. okay? I want to run around the screen a bit. Go ahead. And again, I think we all know this, right? And if you've ever seen someone control a kindergarten class, which is this, I don't know how anybody does it. they use these kind of techniques. A friend of mine, a uh, guy I know, he, he, he teaches kindergarten right now, and he's like a 27-year-old guy. And I have no idea. He, he said it's much more hard than anything he's ever done in his whole teaching career. He's completely wiped when he comes home. And I said, aren't you just tempted to just go, just shut your goddamn mouth! He said, well, I could do that, but then I'd get fired. You know? But he, I said, it would work, though. He said, oh, it would work and they all start crying and <laughs> nothing's going to go well so how, you, know, you, you see like a kindergarten school or as a kindergarten, junior kindergarten or you see like a daycare I have no idea how these people stay sane but one of the ways that they do to control a classroom is to say look we're going to make one thing contingent on another so you can get you know sort of free time to do whatever you want that's the ultimate pre thing do whatever you want because that's the most likely thing, right? But first, you have to sit here and pay attention. Right? So this is this is used a lot. I mean, again, I think a lot of us use these things. I mean, you can use this. To, you think, well, this only work word, word with. Uh, Dave, you've given me examples of what? You give me an example of monkeys. You give an example of people. Does this work with a dog? Yeah, sure, it does. Right? Think about this. You do this all the time. You give them you reinforce them with a walk. It's just something people do. And that's just behavior. So you can control behavior nicely with these kind of things. So it isn't just something that's biologically relevant. It can be anything that's likely. Will work for the access to do something that we want to do. Now that again sounds a little bit circular. The nice thing is today we actually do know uh, how this works in the brain. We understand how reinforcement works. But if, the cool thing is if we can do determine <coughs> something's reinforcer without you know putting electrons across nucleus succumbens. One of the ways we determine if something actually is a reinforcer is we see, will the animal work for that? Right? So, will an animal work for looking at a mate, a potential mate? Yeah, they will. For example. Then we can say, okay, we see that's that it's a reinforcer. All right. That's kind of cool stuff. So behavioral economics is kind of like applying the, the, the rules and laws and such theorems of economics to behavioral psychology. So there are two kinds of economies. There's the open economy and the closed economy. Now, an open economy is when the animal is getting... Some of its reinforcement... I'm going to say use food here. The animal's getting some of its food, or as Premack would probably say, eating behavior, in the home cage, and some in a a chamber, in an operant chamber. Most experiments are done like this, with open economies. Right? So the animal... Taken from its cage, home cage, and it's put in the chamber. It eat, and It works for some food. It's put back in its home cage, given some food. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now the cool thing is, or the interesting thing is, that this actually the world doesn't tend to work that way, does it? Like out in the wild, you don't get some of your food here and then uh, in one world and some of it in another. In a world where you get your food, one pigeon refuses to love. So. You see, there's a documentary out called In a World, and it's about a woman who's trying to become one of the people that does the voiceovers for movie trailers. But Maddie says she watched a that. it the other day. Looks interesting. Or no, Isabel says she watched it. Isabel watches all kinds of crap on Netflix that I watch. I'm busy just going, what TV show can we watch eight seasons of? So I do. Now, the world actually works more like a closed economy, where you get all your food in your you live in your, your operating. Now, typically, these are going to be a bit bigger than standard opera chambers, so the animals can move around. I know Lori's done a lot of her stuff like this, where her chickadees get food for when when they get a, a right answer, basically, when they're asking, is this, 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 this song versus this song, you know, that kind of work, like Lori does that bird song stuff. So, to, when the birds correctly identify where a song comes from they get some meal work which are chickadees quite like so what we're getting here is we're getting quite a different situation because the animal's getting all its food out of the world like the world is where it gets everything so you know we might be living in an aviary or a really big cage and all its food and all you could even do all its water if you wanted to they would get for doing some kind of like behavior. In fact, so this is a lot more like the way the world works, the actual world. And in this case, we can actually use the sort of rules of economy, of, of economics, to make predictions. <clears throat> Things like, we can look at supply and demand. Right? We can change the price of something. What do you mean the price? Well, how much you have to work for it. If you have to push a lever 100 times versus 5 times, it becomes more expensive when it's 100 times. It's more behavior. Right? Okay. We can actually look at things like the elasticity of demand. What's that? Well, some things have elastic demand and some things don't. Or, well, some things are more or less elastic. Like, for example, the ultimate thing that has inelastic demand is water. You'll do anything for water. Because you can't live more than a couple of days without drinking something. You can't. You can, you can go a long time without eating food. But I think it's like three or four days without a drink of water. You just die. You need water. So if you make the animal's... In this closed economy, you can make water really expensive. Like they really have to push a bar a lot. It really have to. Pack. Doesn't matter. They'll they'll do it. Other things, like for example, we can use different foods. So we could have a preferred food and a non-preferred food, or differently preferred foods. They'll work a little harder. They'll have a little more inelastic demand for a preferred food than a non-preferred food. This is used a lot in behavioral pharmacology when you look to see how much an animal will work for a drug. Animals will work really, really, really hard. You can get up to like a, an FI, FR-500 for monkeys to take PCP. Angel dust. I don't think you want to see monkeys on PCP, frankly. But they'll work really hard for it. They'll work really hard for cocaine. They'll work really hard for heroin. and yeah, uh, Morphine, not heroin, necessarily. Same thing, but. Humans are like this to a point too. Humans who work really hard for humans who smoke will pay anything for cigarettes. I think I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes in a long time, but last I think I saw somebody in front of me and I, much what, freaked out. But it was like 14 bucks for a pack of cigarettes. I, I didn't know that they've gone up. But if I still smoked, I'd pay them. Oh yeah, hey, here you go. Must have my cigarettes. Now I'm in flavor country. Smooth. <laughs> so it's interesting. You guys don't remember the day we cigarette ads. But it's interesting because we can look at how inelastic or elastic demand is for things like, for a lot of drugs, caffeine, humans, it, well, has really inelastic demand. And you can actually look at this using real economics and look at what the price of, of coffee wa- is. Right? In 1979... 79, maybe 78. Probably 78. um, There was a a lot of bad weather in Brazil. South America just... It was cold. So the coffee harvest was horrible. So coffee got really expensive. Coffee got up to $6 a pound in 1978. Now, I wonder what the value of a dollar was in 1978... If only I had the internet, I could look that up. Because I, I, now, I, now I just want to know. So, uh, value of a nineteen seventy-eight dollar. See, I this, as you can see, I've gone to that site before. I, I look at the whenever I'm watching a TV show and someone says that there's so much money, I wonder what that's worth now. I said, I'm watching Mad Men. Someone's making seventy thousand. I wonder what seventy thousand dollars is. So, one so let's, let's go with six dollars and seventy-eight. Okay, twenty-two dollars. So people were buying coffee. It was the equivalent of twenty-two dollars a pound. Right? And people are like, well, yeah, I've got a cup of coffee. <laughs> so people actually were doing that. So coffee has really inelastic caffeine. There's really inelastic demand. Coca-Cola is a great example of a caffeine delivery system. Do you know anybody that lives in the far north of Canada? Right? Say, uh, north, northern Labrador or, or northwest territories. Cokes are like five bucks a can at the grocery store. People buy them. People buy them. Caffeine, man. Got to have my caffeine. So we can actually look, and that's in We we use this. You can almost rate how, I don't like the word addictive, but I'm going to use it anyway, how addictive a drug is by looking at how hard people or animals will work for it. And that's, in fact, using the elasticity of demand done in an operant situation. Now, how many of you here took behavioral ecology with Istvanium ray? None of you? Okay, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, behavioral ecology is the study of how animals interact, it's an evolutionary angle, how animals interact with their environment and how it affects their behavior <coughs> and how that behavior has been selected for. And it's almost all mathematical. It's there's a lot of math in it. Okay? Some of you guys took the animal behavior with me last year? Okay, I knew some of you guys did. A lot of you just didn't take the second part, with this one. Okay. So if you guys remember, we talked about foraging, right? How animals make decisions about eating and what to eat. So let's say what an animal has to know, like ideally... If there's two places an animal can get food, or uh, let's say five places, an animal can get food. Or no, let's say there's K places an animal can get food. It's going to get mathy just a little. So there's K places, K what we're going to call patches, where an animal can get food, okay? This is an animal that that, that forages in a patchy environment. This is not an animal that grazes. Right? This is not a cow. Cow's like, well, I just eat grass all day. It's all this grass everywhere and I eat it. Right? I got four stomachs, and eventually, I, big cow shits come out of me. I don't know what cows are making. <laughs> They're just cows. But I'm talking about something that's going from patch to patch. Okay? So, we can look at the rate of return. This is good. Again, it sounds kind of economic. Right? The uh, profitability of any given patch. Right, equals the energy that the animal gets divided by the handling time. The energy is the measure. You measure that in calories. Handling time, let's say how long it takes to, to open up a nut or or, or um, whatever. How long it takes to eat something. The so profitability equals energy divided by energy. That makes sense. Do you understand why that's the
1: case?
0: Okay. When should the animal leave patch one and go to patch two? Because remember, this isn't gonna, this is going to go down because the food's going to deplete, right? The food's going to deplete. <clears throat> hard one to think of, isn't it? Dan, you got, a, you got an idea?
1: Uh, would it be when uh, it, it's been uh,
0: satisfied with its hunger? No, let's not think like that. You're thinking too much. You, you sort of think, you're thinking like a psychologist. Let me start thinking like a biologist. Like when they've... I'm thinking of like the nectar or like
1: the pollen in can, a can flower. It could be nectar. could
0: be pollen. Sure, that's great, Yeah.
1: When they've taken the most of it from that area, so like then they have to move, they, it's better, they're better off moving to another area where there's
0: a lot versus yes. keep spending a lot of time or energy looking in that one spot? Because there's going to be diminishing returns from this, right? Eventually the nectar, let's, let's, we use nectar giving flowers, that's wonderful. So we'll think of uh, Hawaiian honey creepers, <laughs> and they're, they're eating nectar from, from flowers, and the nectar goes away. It doesn't just keep replenishing. And Dan says, maybe they're not, not hungry anymore. They're still hungry. That's what you talking about. But I think Tori's on something. yet. Yeah. I'm going to have to look at uh, a situation where the energy
1: of am mm-hmm. handling yes.
0: is equal to the energy you receive. If they're equal, yeah, yeah. then you're not really getting any Oh, profit. that's true. Zero. Yes, exactly. At some so, point, the so You stopping. have to leave before your profit is zero. Yes. that You're starting to come on, but you're getting closer. What should the value of P be? <laughs> and you can't tell me a number because I haven't given you any numbers. Positive. It's always going to be positive until, something, it's, until it's all gone. When should they leave, though?
1: Higher free? than energy divided by handling time?
0: Mm, it's always going to be energy divided by handling time. Okay. When are they going to leave? They're going to leave when this is less than P bar, the average... Profitability of any given food patch, right? Because at some point it's like this isn't worth it anymore. I can get more over here. This is a less. This is a, a the patch. This patch, I mean, is a worse than average food patch. I should leave because I should go somewhere else. There's going to be a better one. Does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah. Right. Now, there's a, this is totally this behavioral ecology. This isn't psychology, so you might you could ask yourself all kinds of questions. Uh, how do the animals know the profitability of all the patches in their environment? All okay, patches in their environment. Uh, how do they? And then, do they actually do the division? Do, do they actually take the mean? We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about that. But isn't this? Look what we could do. What could we change if we had two pecking keys? Right? We'll call this patch one. And we'll call this patch two. Are they actual patches of food? Well, no, they're not. But why don't we test this? This is how animals should behave. Let's see if they do behave that way. And this is where the psychologist steps in to test a lot of these behavioral ecology notions. Right? Because we're good at that. We're good at mechanism. We're good at designing experiments. How could, what could we change? How could we change this? Well, we give food that has... We give more food. That's easy. It's pigeons. They access to mixed brain. We can give them... We can measure instead of energy, we could say just how much food they get. And if they get twice as much food, that's twice as much energy. It's gotta be. How can we change the handling time? How many packs? How many pecs they do? Right? So that's easy. We can play with the profitability ideas from two different patches in a freaking skinner box. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that ends up being from the comes from behavioral ecology, which is actually really cool stuff, behavioral ecology. Um, A lot of the stuff that where where people are uh, they come up with these sort of rules. This, by the way, is called the marginal value theorem the idea that they should leave. Uh, It was uh, discovered, discovered, I guess, is probably the right word, by a guy named Charnov in 1976. Um, this is how animals should behave. If this is optimal optimality, this is the way they ought to behave. But do they? So now we have to test it. And how do we test it? We test it in the lab. This is nothing on mechanism. This is about what the outcome of behavior. This is nothing on mechanism. So now we can test it in the lab, and then we can find out. And we'll talk about this next time. What are the mechanisms that allow them to behave like this? Like they actually know the average and are doing this inequality. By the way, they do. That's how animals that, behave, that forage in patchy environments, they literally do behave like that. But how? And that's where the psychologist can go, oh, I can do mechanism. I can do mechanism. I'm a psychologist. So that's where the psychologist steps in. Wait and on that, in
1: that note, I can talk I'm on the next slide, to where the lights will never sleep at all. Cause you drive me crazy, just like a record spinning right Waiting ringside, waiting for that bell to ring again. When, when you're outside of my